Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now here's our show. In 1930, the U.S. reached the semifinals of the first World Cup and then beat England 1-0 in the 1950 finals. Yet still, the game struggled. I never played with an American-born player until I joined the national team and uh, met Kyle Rowe Jr. Everybody that I played with growing up until the age of 18, 17, 18 years old was of an ethnic background. Very few Americans played the game of soccer. While soccer remained an amateur, almost underground pursuit for the ethnic minorities, the big-time, big-money sports of gridiron football and baseball were awash with all-American heroes. We were familiar with the, the big names of other sports, and we felt that we really had to get big names from soccer. Well, those were all overseas people, and, uh, and Pele was the biggest and the best. In 1975, at a price of $7 million, Pele signed for the New York Cosmos. The NASL started to flourish. During halftime of Pele's first game with the Cosmos, Pele came into the dressing room and, and asked us not to pass him the ball that often because he was getting exhausted. In 1977, Pele led Cosmos to the NASL title. I think it was 77, Father's Day 77, when we saw the Cosmos outdraw the Yankees and Mets combined. I think it was playoffs in 1977 when we sold out the stadium on a regular basis, standing room only, 78,000, which had never been done even by the Giants. And then a couple of moments, some, some really major games where we actually played well. Confidence was at an all-time peak. This league will become as big as the NFL is, and, uh, and that this country, North America, will become the center of world soccer. Following the success of New York Cosmos, who had attracted Warner Brothers as their backers, the NASL expanded to 24 teams. The problem was the Cosmos were the exception rather than the rule. The six new owners, who had been wooed by the sight of a packed Yankee stadium, had entered into soccer for a quick dollar. But by the early 1980s, the NASL experiment began to falter. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, now, how you doing, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yes, yeah, sit down, buckle up, and uh, join us for our uh, weekly joyride into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us. And um, we uh, are uh, ecstatic to have you here. And uh, we are equally excited uh, to have our uh, guest this week. Uh, I would call him, frankly, the most underrated um, player uh, in New York Cosmos soccer uh, history. Uh, the one, the only, the National Soccer Hall of Famer, Warner Roth, joins us uh, for a, a, a fascinating conversation in our sort of unending 
um, quest to uh, learn everything we could ever learn about the uh, vaunted New York Cosmos. Again, the uh, argued uh, reason for uh, this uh, series of podcasts uh, in the first place from uh, almost five years ago now we've been doing this. Um, and a lifelong uh, passion for the team, obviously a childhood memory and stuff. And um, and Warner is uh, arguably the, uh, the the flame keeper uh, for the history uh, and the contributions of uh, the Cosmos soccer uh, franchise. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, discussion. We get into lots of stuff, lots of new uh, bits and pieces of information, uh, some of which was completely uh, new to me. Uh, and uh, if you consider yourself a North American Soccer League fan, a, a fan of soccer in the United States generally, uh, a Cosmos fan uh, specifically, um, stay tuned because you're going to find uh, this to be a just treasure trove of, uh, of fun and fascinating stuff. And um, uh, the clip that you sort of heard there at the beginning kind of sets it all up uh, as we get into our conversation this week. Um, that clip uh, is from uh, an amazingly uh, essential, I think. For any soccer fan, uh, box set. It's called The History of Football, The Beautiful Game. It came out in 2002. It's it's very reasonably priced in, in places like Amazon and whatnot. I don't know if it's ever aired. I'm sure it's been – it's part of streaming services out there now. Um, uh, it's narrated by a guy named Terrence Stamp. Uh, I, I, I think the easy thing to say is that it would – that it ran on the BBC, but I think that's uh, maybe not true. Um but uh, it is chock full of great stuff about the the history of the game worldwide. Uh, but in particular, the, uh, the 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 snippet you heard there was sort of a uh, the a few minutes focus on that of the United States and uh, um, and the sort of rise and uh, beginning of the fall of the North American Soccer League, a topic, of course, that we've gone on on and on and on about uh, in previous episodes, and we'll continue to do so because it's endlessly fascinating. Um, and Werner Roth is a perfect uh, uh, person. Uh, to have a conversation about that. And you heard him actually in that clip, along with uh, the late Phil Woosnam, the uh, uh, the uh, commissioner of the North American Soccer League uh, for most of its life, uh, Clive Toy, uh, clearly uh, a former guest of ours, uh, the alluring of uh, Pelé and the running of the New York Cosmos at that time. And if anybody is sort of uh, uh, qualified to kind of explain what was going on in the, let's call it BP days, that is before Pelé's arrival, officially June 10th, 1975, and AP, after Pelé, um, I think that's a good demarcation, uh, it's it's Werner. Uh, he uh, was part of this Cosmos team from almost its inception. Uh, and by the way, this is 51 years to the week, I think, that the team was founded, February 1971. Um, uh, Werner joined the team in uh, for the 1972 season. Uh, and we'll get into sort of how and why and uh, and and what the composition of the team was at that point. And frankly, we're going to ride through uh, what it was like uh, before, uh, during the Pele experience, the three years there in the mid seventies, and then afterwards, the the fears, the concerns that that you know the uh, the propping up, shall we say, the uh, the edifice of of Pele's arrival and then departure, uh, the, the the worries that uh, perhaps uh, with him would go all of this excitement. Um, that was not to be the case, uh, and and Warner Roth uh, was very much uh, a uh, a pillar of uh, of this team uh, in all of those phases. And frankly, uh, the captain of the team for two of its the three championships that uh, Warner was part of. Nineteen seventy two was the early part, but in seventy seven and seventy eight, two legendary seasons, uh, he was captain and um, 
he is just a wealth of information uh, and, and a flame keeper for sure. Very passionate about uh, keeping the uh, history uh, and the memories alive, not only of the team, but just soccer in general. Uh, and, um, and and there are reasons beyond the cosmos as to why Werner Roth is um, uh, a member, uh, and rightly so, of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. So uh, stay tuned. Fascinating conversation with the great, the captain, Werner Roth, uh, coming up in uh, just a few uh, moments' time. Uh, you're going to enjoy this. Uh, buckle up for safety because it's it's a hoot. Um, let's uh, quickly uh, say hello to our sponsor, Friends of the Week. That's uh, our pal Dean Mitchell in San Diego. It's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code for you there is good seats for 15% all of your purchases. And uh, as uh, listeners of this show know, sportshistorycollectibles.com is a wondrous place to find uh, well-curated, well-lit, well-described, and exceedingly well-photographed uh, memories, uh, souvenirs, uh, collectible items uh, that could range from things like uh, press guides and uh, yearbooks and uh, buttons and pins and stickers and, and all kinds of other ephemera, I guess, uh, from perhaps those uh, memories of various teams and leagues that are no longer with us or previously domiciled across a wide array of sports. Soccer, of course, uh, among them. Uh, lots of cool stuff in there if you're a North American Soccer League fan or even an American Soccer League fan uh, or even early days MLS. How about the, the Tampa Bay Mutiny uh, or the Miami Fusion or perhaps uh, Chivas USA? Uh, already have some defunct teams uh, from that league too. And, and you're going to find a, a just a, a uh, an overwhelming amount of great stuff and memories. You're going to lose a lot of time, of course, uh, but hopefully also uh, part with a few uh, bucks as well uh, to just uh, own uh, some of these things that you just must have. Uh, it's a great site. Uh, Dean uh, and his friends put uh, put a lot of love and effort into it. There's there's new stuff coming all the time. Uh, it's it's frankly a much more curated uh, version, I say, I guess, of an eBay. Uh, and uh, you can always trust that the uh, the items are of the highest quality and uh, and will be shipped to you with uh, with expertise and um, uh, and uh, with all your satisfaction uh, as a consumer. It's sportshistorycollectibles.com. It's all one word, sportshistorycollectibles.com. And again, use that promo code early and often, good seats, all one word, good seats for 15% off all of your item purchases. Thanks, Dean, for your sponsorship of the show. We appreciate it. It goes back almost to the beginning of this show, uh, and we cannot appreciate it more. And we cannot appreciate you more. Uh, uh, for continuing to listen. Great conversation. We uh, welcome to our microphones the great uh, Werner Roth. Here's our chat that we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. I want to start with a little personal anecdote because there's another scenario here, and I don't want to be too much of a fanboy here, but um, you also don't remember, I think back in, I want to say it was 19... 76, the winter thereof, um, this was uh, sort of the year between uh, Downing Stadium and going to um, uh, to Yankee Stadium. And, and you and uh, I believe it was Bobby Smith uh, came to my uh, my school in, in beautiful Hohokus, New Jersey, up in uh, Bergen County to uh, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, well, you gave us awards because our, our soccer league, uh, we did really well that year um, and um, introduced us to this. Uh, literally and figuratively foreign concept of professional soccer and these, 
New York <laughs> Cosmos, which we had never kind of really understood or heard about, but you were still game to sign a few autographic uh, pictures and and uh, and you know be the Pied Pipers, if you will. Um, I, so number one, thank you for uh, your unwitting uh, instilling of me in the professional game because Lord knows I was playing it uh, as a kid, but to actually know that there was a professional league and a professional team in the New York metropolitan area, that was a revelation to a kid who was nine years old. Well, same with me. <laughs> I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, and uh, ethnic uh, community, and we played soccer all the time, but we never heard of pro soccer except in Europe and South America. And we used to read a magazine called The Kicker, which was about the German Bundesliga, and I first heard about this this young international Franz Beckenbauer tearing up the fields over there. And, uh, but we never considered at that age, you know, 10, 11, 12, even until I was out of high school, we never thought pro soccer would come, would come to the U S we played our biggest, uh, objective professionally was to play for our men's first team and get paid, you know, $50, $75 a game. And it's how I initially uh, started paying my way through college. Uh, but, uh, and of course, we heard in the late 70s, um, you know, I mean, sorry, the late 60s that, you know, after the 66 World Cup, which all of us in Queens watched at Madison Square Garden breathlessly. Oh, and yeah, the, actually, the, the Felt Forum, I think. Or was it the main? main uh... Well, it might have been played there as well. But, uh, oh, oh, you mean the Felt Forum within Madison Square Garden? Yeah, downstairs. I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but it was the old Madison Square Garden and uh, it was full and, uh, you know, it was an incredible match, of course. And it wasn't until some months after that, that there was some uh, speculation from a guy named Eric Besser, who was the German newspaper writer in, uh, <laughs> in New York, the only guy that was writing about soccer at the time, but he initially floated uh, the idea that there's a group forming uh to start a pro league in the u.s and of course there were three groups forming uh and all three formed the pro a pro league in in the states and all of them failed so you know we had our ups or downs in the early days but yeah we had no inclination that pro soccer was in any of our futures and then when one of our best uh, german hungarian players um uh, signed a contract with the whips washington whips in i guess it was 67 i was still in college um 67 68 perhaps and he got me a tryout there and i went to washington for a summer and uh saw what you know real pro soccer was about um in terms of the training and the commitment and all of that and they offered me a contract which i accepted and i came back to new york to uh to leave college for a semester or two. And uh, before I got home, I got a letter saying that the league had disbanded and <laughs> I should not make any changes in my plans, according to, uh, to uh, my past discussions with them. So the league folded. And, uh, and then when it resurrected, when Clive and Phil Woosnam finally uh, tried to resurrect the league, there were only four clubs left. It wasn't enough for a, a competitive season. And, uh, but he did come out to, um, the co to some of the German American League games and 
spoke to some of the players and this was maybe 70, 71. And we were all skeptical. I was back in school. I was about to graduate. Uh, so I wasn't about to sign anything. And uh, so I didn't play with them in 71, which is when they started. And well, let's, I did let's play. Back up, let's back up for a second. Though. You, you're talking about sure. the German American League. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd love to just uh, uh, get our audience who are, is unfamiliar with sort of the New York metropolitan area and the what the unfamiliar semi- with yeah the well semi- <laughs> well some some people it's actually kind of important right because ultimately of course absolutely cosmopolitan soccer league which actually has a little bit of a tributary into the cosmos story but can yep, you explain absolutely. what this German American League was well it I, was a social yeah. it was the social club concept the sports social club concept that was brought over with uh, all of the ethnic Germans, you know, Eastern Europeans, Italians, uh, Swedes, you know, everyone and South American uh, people as well that emigrated. But our neighborhood was was mostly Germanic. So the name German Hungarian Soccer League, you can imagine the ethnicities we played against clubs like the Greek Americans, the, um, uh, you know, every uh, Blue Star, which was a good, uh, great Jewish team. Uh, but every nationality had their uh, team and their clubhouse and their field and their restaurant and their youth leagues, you know, which we never paid for. Nobody ever paid to play youth soccer. It was, would have been unheard of. And um, so these were um, foreign ethnic leagues that were and clubs that were created basically for their ethnic members. And then it wasn't until... Uh, I got into the league, into the men's team uh, in the late 60s, I guess maybe 66, 67, and where we started getting some, uh, you know, Brazilians, George Siega, which was the first player ever signed by the Cosmos, and he's the guy that got me to Washington for the tryout in the late 60s. But uh, so it wasn't until late 60s that these clubs and the whole league really uh, began to encourage uh, you know americans to participate and all of that now you're you you were uh you were basically a, a first generation uh, uh uh citizen if you will right you you were born uh abroad but then you you came yeah. as a child to to that area right so you essentially were yes. an american citizen um i i became a citizen when i was first drafted by um the national team Right. So, so but you, you, you yep. probably had this sort of semi-unique uh, experience in that. I mean, the, uh, this is a little, you know, for, for, for all intents and purposes, truly ethnic in background, right? And, and arguably, yeah. you know, s- strongest interest in the sport, purest, bringing it over yeah. and, and what they remember from, from the old world and trying to sort of fashion something in, into, into the new, but, but completely still devoid of the what we now know is the stereotypical American player per se. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not only trying to establish the game. I mean, they had serious matches. They had football stadiums, not of the kind of course, you know, that you have today, but then it was all about function uh, and not, you know, comfort. So we had fields, they weren't grass, but they were level and they were lined and they had, (laughs) And we had referees and we had schedules and uh, people came out to see us by the thousands. So for us, it was, you know, it was a continuation of the social club concept. And we had, you know, we had fans in their 60s and 70s that were there watching who had played with our club. 
our clubhouse was festooned with with pictures and you know uh silverware uh from you know uh the the decades in the league so it was a proud accomplished league that never you know had the objective of making any serious money on the game otherwise they would have formed a real <laughs> professional league but they were doing it for the social benefit of the community and it was a, a club membership that you were kind of born into and uh you know you stayed involved if you if if you stayed in that neighborhood you stayed involved most of your life so and uh you know it was mostly youth oriented it was about you know providing the kids a place to play well look i'm also sure though that the uh when foreign teams came to play professional exhibitions at the international soccer league through the early part of the 60s uh, and even just the one-offs at yankee stadium or yeah. uh and those other places i'm sure those were major events in 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 your domain as well right it's it gives gives everybody absolutely. to see their heroes uh, in person in the flesh absolutely and and we were competitive i mean you know our uh players had the benefit of early childhood development you alluded to it you know in terms of a of a european or south american uh, upbringing so child uh early childhood development which we now know is the foundation of player development at at any level uh so we had that benefit we played every day so we we were basically you know incorporating the 10 year 10,000 hour rule which is is now known you have to play at least two and a half to three hours a day or train to be elite at almost anything so we had that benefit we we were poor we had in many cases uh you know little other recreational outlets and um so we we had some pretty good teams our all-star team were very competitive against the international competition that we played against and um so you know NASL really had a good playing foundation uh to to grow from but of course in their early days they didn't they didn't either know that or care about that they brought in you know whole teams uh for a summer they you know brought in mostly international players that would go back it wasn't until Clive and Phil you know wrote the memo that you know players we need to americanize the game and develop locally as well as you know internationally so aside from your your whips uh, uh quote unquote experience um before we get into the the founding of the cosmos park cuz it's it's a, it's a hugely important story that you're uh a, 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 an essential uh component of um, wh- what do you remember of those besides the tryout uh, of those first, well, actually two leagues that actually did start in 67, the United Soccer Association, all those fully imported teams yeah. and the and the NPSL. And then the second year of being that sort of combined NASL. Do you have any re- uh, memories of that in particular, the two and then one team uh, that were part of it, the Generals and the Skyliners? Yeah, no, I uh, I went to a few generals matches. Um, I thought they were kind of one off because you didn't really hear anything about those leagues within our soccer community, our ethnic soccer community. They were a non entity, so you didn't really give them a lot of credit. You know, you're waiting to read that they'll they'll fold again. You know, that was my picture, and uh, you know they played and, in better. I'm sorry, was that because of yeah. of, of either 
arrogance, elitism. Uh, uh, Americans don't understand this sport. Uh, no great players of, of well, of it, it could have been a number of things. You know, if anybody did any market research, they would have understood that uh, the ethnic fans in, a, in, in, the, in the ethnic communities across America, and they were, as you probably know, they were everywhere, um, that they didn't pay 10 bucks for a ticket. They didn't, most of them didn't drive, so they stayed locally. So if you were playing at Yankee Stadium, you know, it was okay because you could take public transportation, but any any form of transportation was a hindrance uh, to uh, fan uh, attendance because, first of all, they didn't know about these players, which is, I guess, to some degree, you know, not a lot of marketing effort behind it, or at least in areas that we accessed. Um, and really no defined schedule. We didn't really know until the day before. We didn't look for our schedules, but we didn't know the day before, you know, who was playing, where they were playing, and at what time. So, it was a relatively disorganized approach, having failed already a number of times that wasn't really taken seriously. But I think then by I think by 71, um, there were a number of teams in the league that played, you know, the, the Cosmos were at Yankee Stadium. Uh, and I think there were a number of, of players in the league that were good competition. The first year when I came to the club, as a guest player late in the season, they asked me to play. They were, they were down some players. And um, I realized they were all mostly Greek Americans, you know, they were and who I knew. I knew all of the players basically because we played against them in the German American league. Uh, they were mostly Greeks and a couple of uh, German uh, players from Hoda. And um, you know, they didn't go, the club didn't go very far that first year. But I, I, you know, that's basically all I remember. They were they were really not on the map in the late '60s, early '70s, until, for me at least, and for many of my, you know, friends and and uh, neighbors, uh, for me it didn't really start until '72, until they moved out to Hofstra. They made they initiated a major effort to connect with the Long Island Junior Soccer League and with the New York. Uh, soccer association and with those leagues and um, you know came out and about in the neighborhood and Gordon Bradley who was the first coach in 71 I knew personally because I played with him on, a, on some all-star teams and uh, uh, he was he played with I think uh, Hoda or New York Ukrainians one of those teams that so we saw each other a lot and be, and I knew he was you know he was um yeah, he even played and for the Generals, I think, in 68 as well. I think he did play for the Generals. And in fact, he always tells a story where he, he covered Pelé and kept him scoreless. You know, Pelé couldn't live that down for the years <laughs> that we played together. But uh, yeah, Gordon, Gordon was around. Gordon was very a- ambitious and very excited about the possibilities. I wasn't as invested as he was. And uh, so when, it, when he called in 71, uh, you know, to invite me to to uh, attend a few matches, play a few as a guest player. You know, I did it because basically he's a friend. And then in 72, he said, look, this is going to be serious. There's a serious effort. Um, you're not going to have to travel much. You can, you, you only need, cause I was work by then. I had just started a career in architecture was working in the city and, you know, I, I needed to focus on that. And I told him and he said, yeah, not a problem. You'll, you know, fly when you can and train when you can, your job comes first and all that. You know, we practice at night, so that was not a big deal. 
And of course, I was interested enough in, in my own player development. I didn't, I didn't know at that time where, you know, I would end up or if, if soccer would be a career opportunity, whatever. But I was always training. I was always researching. I was always playing. So this was for me another, you know, additional season of good training, good travel, some good players and some good competition. Um, so that's kind of how I slid into that situation in 72 well if i if i remember correctly 71 obviously this is way before even i was sort of uh, uh conscious of of this team and, and perhaps maybe even some cases your, your fellow uh players that that got sucked into the, the to the extravaganza that it became um uh 70 it seems like this german american league actually was almost sort of like a backyard feeding ground for totally uh, a need to get a team up and running because i think this franchise was awarded in february of 71 and if memory serves, like the, the season kind of started around April or so, that's not a hell of a lot of time to get a, a team together, let alone yeah. warm bodies. Well, Clive called Gordon and Gordon called everybody and uh, he had a team. You know, they, they tell the great story about <laughs> setting up a team meeting, uh, you know, signing meeting up in um, at uh, JFK Airport at the Hilton Hotel. And, uh, you know, they, they would negotiate with all the players and they put their team together, you know, 70, $75 a week, you know, uh, take it or leave it for three or four months and uh, no health insurance, you know, you're on your own as far as everything else is concerned. But like, you know, like most, most players that participated in those early days, we love to play and, uh, you know, whether it's $75 a game or 75 cents a game, if you had a good team and you had a good field and a good bar nearby, you know, you were all set. <laughs> Maybe a meal as well. Um, Absolutely. All right. So, so walk me through then how you make that uh, semi pro or, or amateur player in German American league uh, with a career, if you will, a day job, a budding day job career. Um what's how's the conversation go between you and Gordon about um, this cosmos thing, uh, how it's going to go. And um, you know, what were you promised? So to speak, Uh, you know, very little. It was a one page contract, you know, uh, and it basically, you know, my discussion with Gordon and I mean, we've all been on these teams before, you know, we were, for a couple of years, I played with uh, KLM, the Dutch airline team, you know, for uh, free tickets, you know, to travel. And we do a couple of games in the States and we do a couple of matches in Holland. And uh, so we've all been on, on, on this before. He didn't need to explain anything. You know, every almost every player at that time, I think there were two foreign players. But I think oh, every player at that time, 71, 72 was uh, German American League had a full time job uh, that had to be that had to be taken care of, et cetera. So he didn't have to tell me much. He said, "You know, you're getting seventy five bucks a game, and the season's this long. You know, there's no guarantees. Uh, you know, do you want to play? <laughs> how, much, how, so, much, how much sacrifice did you have to make for the for the day job? I didn't." I didn't make any sacrifices and he, and they knew that they acquiesced to, I guess because, nobody did, right? Because it was still, it was still a part-time-ish thing. Absolutely. Right? It was totally part-time-ish. 
and we worked. And if we made it to training, we made it to training. If we didn't make it to training, we didn't. If we got to the gay into the airport on time, we didn't. It didn't matter. We had 15, 16 players. You know, all we needed is 11. And uh, so we were good. There was no, you know, there was none of this hoopla stuff that goes on nowadays. So this was, you know, the rough and tumble. This was the wild, wild west of early pro soccer. And it was great. I worked for a guy. I was very lucky. Worked for a guy. He was um, um, just opened an office. He was from San Juan. He was building prefabricated architecture, which was one of my, which was my passion. I, you know, loved uh, architecture and and the ability to build small and cheap. Uh, but in any case, so uh, being he was, you know, he was um, he knew the game. He loved the game. He used to come to. Uh, Downing Stadium. He never came out to Randall to um, uh, Hofstra, but he came to uh, Randall's Island Downing Stadium because it was near the city. And he would bring clients. You know, we we uh, were as we were building uh, high rises um, in Jersey City at that time. We were selling the the process, the Shelley Systems, as it was called, internationally, and so we were doing pitch meetings. Uh, a couple of times a week to, you know, Koreans and uh, Chinese and, uh, you know, Africans and people that were interested in low cost housing built well. And, and so he brought clients to the matches and he was very proud of introducing me to them after the game. And, and when Pelé arrived, you know, it, uh, he was like in his, in his glory. So for me, it actually helped my career. Um, by the time it got to be, you know, beyond semi-pro, like in 75, 76, when we were really prepping for the big time, uh, Shelly gave me time off. And, you know, as long as I got the job done, um, you know, I could come in, not come in, et cetera. Anyway, I could make, I could incorporate the game into my career at the time. And uh, then as it happens, uh, we sold, he sold the system to, uh, Saudi Arabia to build um, housing uh, for their guest workers. And uh, so uh, he, he left 76, the office, he took half the office, wanted me to go. Uh, they left for Saudi Arabia and I had the option. And it actually gave me the impetus to negotiate a little harder with the Cosmos and and try to get a a full-time uh, salary that I could play full-time, and which was, you know, of course, my dream at the time. Pelé was on board. You know, there was talk about the players coming. And so. Yeah, and it was, it was night and day from 72, 73. I, I, I'm really curious. Yeah. So the 72 through 74, I, you know, uh, oddly and, 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 and uniquely <clears throat> winning the championship in 72. Um, yeah. You're at, but I, I'm curious as to what your mindset is. Obviously, some really interesting players, some of whom were part of the 71 experience, like uh, uh, Randy Horton, yeah. uh, legendary name, and, and uh, uh, Siggy Stritzel and Stan Starzl. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but uh, the, I'm just curious as to what your mindset was like, knowing that here you, you're coming in now full time, if you will, quote unquote, in 72. Um, but having played at Yankee Stadium in front of hundreds, right? Um, yeah. And now going to Long Island to play at Hofstra, it almost feels to me like this might be a step backwards or towards more anonymity. Um, and it, did it feel that way or, or, or did you um, kind of say, I'm going to play this to see how it goes. I'm getting paid. Yeah. And I'm going to come with it. 
Yeah, I think I think that last part, I'm <laughs> getting paid, I'm going to go with it. I don't think I was really expecting a whole lot um, from the Cosmos or the NASL at that time, 71, 70, 72, when I first saw it, uh, signed. So there were, you know, there were no dollar signs in my eyes or anything. I had a good job. And uh, uh, this was this was my love, my passion, my pastime, you know, my hobby. So it all went well. I didn't think of it as a step down. In fact, uh, it was it was bad for me because I had father to travel for practice. It was uh, horrible. But most of the players came from the island. So, you know, for them, it was good. And I think we started to uh, attract some local um, fans, you know, that that were new to the game, but kind of embraced the cosmos uh, for all the clinics that we did, you know, for playing a game that their kids loved, you know. Uh, so it was really I don't think we could have done that in uh, in the Bronx. You know, I, I think that the Americanization of the game in the Bronx, it would have still been ethnic mostly ethnics and but on Long Island it was mostly Americans and I think it was the beginning of the Americanization of the game we found some local players developed then over the next two year Paul uh, Paul uh, Lasur uh, as an example um, Ronnie Atanasio from Adelphi but there were there was some good local talent to be mined certainly but I don't know if if it was almost until 75 when I saw Pele step off the helicopter you know, at Randall's Island, that it kind of clicked that, okay, maybe this is going somewhere. Okay, before, before the, the, the white hot comet of Pele, what, give me a sense of, though, like sort of leading up to that, right? I mean, according to what documentary uh, you watch or, or various people one might have talked to or read about, um, it feels to me like, uh, the Erdogan brothers and, and Clive or uh, either in that order or together or one trying to convince the other group, uh, uh, you know, that a uh, how far away or how close was this idea of this sort of bigger star studded kind of endeavor? I mean, I, 73, 74. Right. I mean, it, it, I, my understanding is that the Pele chase was kind of underway. George Best was kind of thrown around as a name. But but frankly, that sounds like a pipe dream, given the relative small crowds and small footprint, especially in a big sports city like New York. Yeah, was you would. Time? Yeah, you you would think. But you have to look back. Uh, the Erdogans were the first major uh, after Lamar Hunt, I would say, uh, and maybe one or two of the other Lee Stern teams that stuck it in, that stuck it out. Um, they were because of their uh, love for the game and because they were aficionados of the game, they traveled the world to watch some of their favorite players. Clive finally, Clive and, and Phil finally found an audience for their dream, which they had, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s, their dream of uh, their dream of a dream team, actually, a, a combination of international stars and good young American players, but they, so they've always had that dream, you know, that they, did they share it with everyone? No, but certainly within uh, the ownership group, that's what sold Steve Ross and Jay Emmett on the concept of a successful professional league 
in the U.S. And because Clive framed it, you know, in movie making terms, uh, you know, this is a blockbuster that you can people with uh, you can cast with uh, some of the best internationals in the world. And you'll have, you know, you'll sell out the stadium every week. So um, that dream was always there. Uh, they knew they couldn't implement it right away. There was going to be a growth arc, a learning arc, a, a financial arc of, uh, you know, how it's going to be done and how much it's going to cost. So, but Steve Ross was in, the Erdogans were in, and uh, Clive literally had a free reign, maybe not a you know blank check at the time, but a free reign to build this club um, to their ambitious goals uh, and to make it happen. So, you know, he knew and, and he was now of the opinion, he and Phil Woosom were now of the opinion that they made a lot of mistakes in previous in their previous efforts. And here they have to look at it long-term, build the grassroots development of the game, grow the national program, um, you know, toy with television as a means of getting the game out more, but they made a lot of mistakes there as well. But so when, you know, when he went after George Best in 74, that was part of the plan. When, uh, that didn't materialize. He went after Pelé because Pelé had retired. And you're right. He had been going after Pelé since the 70 World Cup, which is where he sold the dream team to the Erdogans. And so from that point on, you know, whenever and wherever he could uh, realistically confront or meet up with Pelé, he would, he would make that move. And and Pelé always said no, always said no. And then it wasn't until he retired in, I believe it was early 75, late 74, whenever, that uh, Clive saw the opportunity again and immediately, you know, sprung into action. And uh, that uh, combined with Pelé's uh, financial situation at the time, um, you know, created the Big Bang <laughs> in U.S. soccer. And uh well, there was also in 74, though, the, the NASL had actually gotten some, you know, some sprouts of, of, of shall we say, new life. I mean, I think the transition from uh, even from 73 to 74 was, I mean, seven, the 74 season, you know, the Pacific Northwest franchises and, and yep. Yep. Uh, San Jose mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, yep. I think the, the, uh, the final. Seattle. Was, exactly. And so there Portland. was, there was, there was some real, I mean. If if one was paying attention, especially in some of these new markets, they were drawing some significant crowds, like in San Jose in particular. Well, they they were paying attention. Uh, they saw what Clive was doing out in Long Island, and they uh, read the plan, uh, the NASL plan. And uh, you know, Phil at the league encouraged everybody to take that, uh, you know, that formula: player development, youth oriented education, clinics you know, masterclasses, uh, coaching uh, corners, you know, everything under the sun to Americanize the game. And with that Americanization, of course, you know, the, they always uh, kind of took the ethnic market for granted. But, you know, the, ex the ethnics are always going to come. If you get some of their local players involved, they're always going to come and support. If you don't make it too expensive and too far. So, uh, yep, I think they all started learning uh, what, you know, w was in, you know, potentially possible and they 
dipped their toes and they saw, yes, this, this could actually work. And I remember those matches, Portland, uh, Seattle, San Jose. There were, there were crowds, unbelievable. You know, I couldn't believe it. I, I believe New York because it was New York. But, you know, those locations for me was, was eye-opening. And, and, um, and then, of course, you know, knowing or finding out that, you know, they're looking at George Best and Pelé and others of that ilk uh, made it more plausible. At what point, so were you captain of the team at this point, 74, 75? No, no. I had, uh, you know, I was basically struggling to make the cut from one year to the next. But you were, you were one of a, of a number of, of uh, standout U.S. players, though, and that obviously gave you some extra credibility and credit. On it, the, did, it did, right? and we had, a, we had a rule in the NASL that at least three American players, either American-born or citizen uh has to start the game so you know i was i was a relative shoe in in terms of I, I never took it for granted but you know I, I i knew i would always start but i didn't know i would always you know be re-signed the following year uh you know that was all based on who else was coming in and all of that but i used the opportunity and the motive as motivation you know i thought you know if Georgie Best, Pelé, any of the others they were talking about, you know, ever came here, this is where I want to play. So I uh, went to extra lengths to make sure that I was, you know, as fit as possible and uh, as skilled as possible. And, uh, you know, when the next year came around and we had our initial exhibition matches and, uh, you know, I, I always made the team. And, and ultimately it was George Siega and myself that went from 74 I think to 75 and 75 Clive already knew he was getting Pelé and, or had a good sense he was getting Pelé. Um, so he brought over like half of the Uruguayan national team, including the Uruguayan captain, <laughs> by the way, in 75. Uh, and that's how we started uh, our season in 75. Uh, Barry Mayhe was our longtime captain. Initially it was John Young. Um, and then, and then Barry Mayhew was a longtime captain. Then in 75, I think when all the South Americans came, Barry asked me to be assistant captain. I had a very good year as well. I won, you know, most valuable player or most, maybe it was <laughs> the most advanced player of the year, which was always a very dubious award. <laughs> they, they liked you a lot. They had to give you something. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, but they were also Americanizing it. You know, they were looking at me as being, you know, the new American type of player. And so they wanted as many photo ops as possible. And then, and then in the middle of the season, Pelé arrived. So when Pelé arrived, Barry Mayhew was captain. I was co-captain. And then 76, Barry retired. And um, we got a bunch of players from England in including Keith Eddy, who was a captain of his, you know, first division club in the EPL. And so um, Keith became captain. I remained as assistant captain. Um, so that was 75, 76. And then 77, beginning of the year, I think um, Keith Eddy retired. And uh, I was named captain. Uh, 
at that time. That was beginning, that was preseason 1977. Interesting. I, I, I'm, I guess I have to circle back on that, uh, that, uh, that date in, in June of 75, because obviously that's sort of, it's like, uh, you know, it's like AD and BC, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So describe you describe basically the composition of the team prior. I'm guessing that aside from rumor and uh, I don't know public dreaming uh, of a of a player of a of a caliber of a George Best or a Pele might someday arrive. Um, what do you remember of the sort of circumstances immediately before this announcement and arrival? How did you find out about it? And then I think maybe more importantly. Do you remember anything about sort of those first days, including the that nationally televised exhibition with the the green paint <laughs> down yeah, the stadium yeah. and, and all that? Because <laughs> I mean, it, it just I mean, in some respects, I, your head had to have been on a swivel at that point um, from what it was, uh, arguably still growing, right? From the, the years that you you mentioned before, the leagues you're getting yeah. attention, you're getting a few more thousand people at this Downing Stadium thing, but. My God, did you ever expect what was going to happen come June 15th or so? No, and not many people did. Um, Clive and Gordon kept it pretty close to the vest at that time. I guess they didn't want any leaks. There was a uh, notification or, a, a, I don't know, an announcement of some sort the week before or the day before the game that a special guest is expected well, here's the other thing. You could never, <laughs> like with Georgie Best, you can never expect it. So don't announce it before it happens, right? So I think that was kind of their attitude. But uh, we were told before the match that uh, before the game started, there would be a um, a uh, special guest uh, joining us. And so after the team lineups, uh, we saw our attention was directed towards the open end of uh, Downing Stadium and the East River and the New York City skyline, the Manhattan skyline. And a helicopter, this blue helicopter, dark blue and white helicopter started getting bigger and bigger and started approaching and fans started, you know, thinking, you know, their wildest dreams were coming true, but still not. There were about, I think there were more fans because we usually get around 5,000, 6,000 at that time. Right. There might have been 10, there might have been 10,000 or so. Uh, but I did notice also because we, our stadium was under the Triborough Bridge, or partially under the Triborough Bridge. And yeah, charitably, from, I would, charitably, I would call it nestled. <laughs> nestled <laughs> underneath, right? Um, but charitably yes. is, uh, is, is embrace, very important embrace, in that stadium. Yeah embraced by the bridge and uh we we occasionally you know we'd see uh fans up there watching you know avoiding the 20 dollar or 15 dollar ticket uh price and and that's a pretty good view from up there i would imagine but i noticed heavier than usual <laughs> attendance bridge attendance uh, on that day and uh, so we're watching this helicopter get closer and it lands at the open end and the door pops open and out jumps Pelé in this, you know, white tuxedo of sorts. And the, the fans that were there just, you know, of course, they immediately recognized him. And uh, the place went crazy and he got standing ovation from everyone. 
until he actually got onto the field and shook hands with all of the players and waved to the fans and did kind of this, uh, you know, semi uh, lap of honor and uh, then sat in a special section and watched a uh, 2-1 loss to Rochester. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, and then in the dressing room, you know, in the very, very uh, humble dressing room of uh, Downing Stadium, you know, we met him again and we had a chance to talk to him, introduce ourselves. And uh, so for the next couple of days, uh, all you could read in the paper was Pele's arrival and very little else, uh, even though the Yankees and I think the Mets were playing at the same time. Uh, we were we were given the back page of, I, I think, every every New York newspaper and uh, papers around the world, because this was a huge thing. And they had scheduled for a press conference at the 21 Club for a couple of days later uh, that I attended. I and a couple of players attended. That turned into a, a small riot. No, it wasn't small. Uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty all out. Yeah, uh, as well as you know, we found out that we had you know a major uh, fox in the chicken coop, Dick Young. The baseball writer for the for the Post, New York Post, and a very influential guy, uh, you know, was so drunk. Well, we all had to wait for Pele, right? So we were having a lot of drinks at the bar, but he was so drunk he called Pele, he called Pele, you know, like an imposter. He called the game, uh, you know, like a, a, a communist immigrant sport. Uh, he made a total fool of himself. And had to apologize, you know, uh, the next day profusely. Uh, how he didn't get fired, I don't know. But he did invite Pelé then as an apology to a New York Yankees game, his favorite team. But yeah, the uh, you know it turned into a kind of a an eye opener in many ways. Uh, the the fight was though the most that was the funniest. If uh, if you haven't heard the whole story about it. No, I would love to tell you. Okay, please, please do. I, before you do that, I was curious. <laughs> did, they, did they announce when when Pele arrived on the helicopter? Did they announce that he was essentially signing, or was it just a, a special guest visitor? Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, they didn't really. They didn't say. You know, they didn't have to say. Nobody said anything. You know, the helicopter. And you guys landed. on the, you guys on the field shaking his hand had no idea. You yeah. just shaking his hand at the greatest player in the world, and you had no idea. Well, why. we well we knew that. I mean, most of us knew that they were trying to sign him and they were trying to sign Georgie Best and all of that. You know, we knew that and we knew the fact that he was here, that it was that much closer. And by then, of course, he had already signed. Right. So uh, officially, he'd already signed. He wasn't coming to New York and, you know, leading that circus without a contract. So anyway, a couple of days later. So we all had a good inkling. And, you know, by the time we met, in the dressing room thereafter, you know, it was confirmed. He had signed, he was going to play the following, uh, maybe not the following game, but the game after that. So uh, the press conference was just basically a public uh, confirmation and, uh, you know, symbolic signing of what was up to that point, the most valuable professional sports contract in the history of sports. So, and I think maybe that's what Dick Young was pissed off about. You know, his, you know, his, uh, I don't know who the baseball stars were at the time, but 
his top stars weren't making, you know, 3.8 to 7 million <laughs> for the next three years. So, um, you know, we're all there on time, you know, 2.30 or whatever. And uh, we're at the bar and the photographers and writers, the room was jammed um, way more than, you know, whatever number uh, it had room for. And there was a a security uh, line between the dais and the media of three or four, you know, long dining tables, you know, lined up next to each other and end to end covered with white tablecloths. So you couldn't really get, and, and they were all coming in from another, another area. We were coming in from the bar. So you couldn't get to the dais, right? Uh, Pelé is on Brazilian time, so he's an hour or so late. Um, Clive makes the introduction. Pelé and the entourage is here. You know, please, uh, may I have your attention? I would like to introduce. All of a sudden, as Pelé steps in, it was Steve Ross, the Erdogans, Jay Emmett, Pelé, Rose, his wife, and Pedro, his new bodyguard, right? Because part of his contract was security. So this fight breaks out. So they all come in, right? They're all standing there waiting to be introduced by Clive, who is at the podium at the microphone and two uh, photojournalists. And I'm behind them. I'm at the bar. So I'm seeing all of this transpire. Uh, Two photojournalists start pushing for the same spot at the edge of the uh, white table uh, separation. And um, they start fighting each other i mean literally fist to fist face fist to jaw you know equipment going everywhere the the dais is you know in shock uh clive is on the microphone ladies and gentlemen of the press ladies and gentlemen of the press trying to get them to stop nothing's happening all of a sudden we see pedro the security guy who was a maybe five foot six uh built like a poof uh, Cuban, uh, former like uh, security guard, security guard or something. So he gets up on these tables, and he's stomping over to the action, to the fight, to try to break it up. But little did anybody know that all the tables weren't connected end to end; they were gaps in between, covered by just tablecloths. So Pedro, stomping over, steps into a gap, disappears, uh, disappears from view. The fighters there, they watched, they saw this and they started laughing. They couldn't help but laugh. Everybody had to, had to laugh. It was such an incongruous scenario. The fight breaks up and uh, Clive gets back to business. And we don't see Pedro for the remainder of the um, press conference. So the, the after story from Pedro was that he was going to go over to break up the fight. He stepped into a hole that he didn't know was there. He didn't hurt himself too much, but he did need medical attention. But he realized that the fight was broken up when he heard all the laughter. And he, you know, soldiered over on his knees and elbows uh, to the exit and just left to get medical attention. (laughs) He diffused a very, uh, very uh, situation there. Not unlike Pele breaking up the 1968 war, right? Yeah, there you go. And which which was... uh, 
uh, indication of the future uh, of Pedro's, um, you know, ability to break up dangerous situations. He always had something funny, uh, you know, that he would fall into literally and figuratively uh, to break up, you know, whatever, whatever problem was current. But he was he was a funny guy. What's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. And that's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Holy mackerel. I added that part. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. Aside from that, and the, and that was just the press conference, the the, the footage that one sees either in, in uh, Once in a Lifetime, the movie, or just, just uh, outtakes or whatever, it's just bananas. But when so the 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 exhibition game with with Dallas was a few days after that. Uh, obviously, a completely different dynamic. You had plenty more people hanging off the Triborough Bridge for that game for yeah, sure. And, yeah. then, and then on, how, how did it? Uh, how did you feel it went? It was sort of Pele and all these other players, right? And you're now lumped into this group of who are all these other players? You know, that people are not, frankly not coming to see everybody else. They're just coming to see the Black Pearl in action. Um, give me a sense, though. I mean, the the, the level of play, uh, uh, the 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 determination to play. Um, uh, I mean, how much changed or how much didn't change uh, upon his arrival and? And for the rest of that season, I mean, expectations must have been sky high, but reality also had to set in too, right? He's only one player. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think a lot of things changed and a lot of things stayed the same. Uh, the things that immediately changed were the media attention and the attendances that maximized basically, you know, as many people as could get into the stadium and as many media passes as were possible to be given out uh, where that was done. Uh, the game on the field didn't change all that much. Uh, we played, you know, we played very competitively uh, pre-Pelé. We played very competitively post-Pelé. But as you said, and as Pelé said, and as Gordon said, he's only one player and uh, the rest of the team has to step up. And uh, there is a, um, a, um, a chance <laughs> uh, that uh, with a player of this magnitude, that some of the players are going to watch him instead of play him, you know, 
so that happened for a few weeks uh, where we'd get caught. I certainly got caught watching Pele on the ball. But that went very quickly because he's such an uh, egoless uh, person, given his stature. And uh, that, you know, teams usually, you know, integrate pretty well, pretty quickly. So we were all playing on the same team. We all had, uh, you know, things to accomplish, uh, challenges to overcome, teams to defeat, you know, uh, championships to win. So we all got to the business of doing that. All right. Aside from not being awestruck or, or him being an accommodating uh, teammate, um, shifting gears into 76, things are clearly uh, on some higher levels now, right? I mean, you're moving into Yankee Stadium. Obviously, the the implicit or explicit expectation of bigger crowds now, uh, not just because of Pelé, but then now some other names, uh, some that were being pursued that were well-known, some others that uh, were yet to sort of really hit superstardom, like a Giorgio Canaglia in 76. Um, it, it must have been intimidating on some level um, for you um, in that uh, not only does the world's greatest player now on your team, but rumors of more and frankly, expectations of a lot more from everybody in the organization. I mean, you were telling me to, a few minutes ago that you were worried about getting re-signed every year. I mean, your, your, your fears or worries must have been uh, magnified uh, on some level now that the circus was now in town. Uh, actually, it was the opposite. They were reduced significantly. Uh, Interesting. Because over those two and a half years, uh, 75, 76 into 77, I basically spent, I, I was able to spend all my time on the game and on my development. And a lot of uh, that uh, progress created more security, uh, certainly, uh, than I had before. So uh, the arrival of Pelé and, and possibly others well, it was ne- it was never a fear because you always knew that if these guys come, you know, all boats will be you know will be raised, basically. And um, yeah, and after you get Pele, I mean, you know, <laughs> who else is going to make that big an impact? For me, it was Beckenbauer too because he was uh, one of my idols when I was a kid. Uh, but. Uh, no, funny enough, or I don't know, normally enough, um, we, I think most of the players kind of took it in stride after a while, after the initial meeting and the recognition and understanding of what's going on, you could, you just get back to business. I mean, it's, it's just what happens. So we were pretty, uh, and again, Pele's uh, personality uh, was such that you know, it didn't, it didn't really come up. It was, it was kind of humorous at times because uh, how he handled a lot of the attention um, from fans and media and, you know, like everybody that sees him, you know, anywhere, he just handles the attention with the most incredible grace and simplicity and uh, childlike wonder uh, that, you know, it's just accepted, you know, you know, I've been in rooms with Pelé with young children that idolized him, 
that within 10, 15 minutes, he makes them feel so at ease and so comfortable that they'll come sit on his lap, put their arms around his shoulder, you know, take away his soft drink, you know, uh, play tricks and jokes. He just, he has that kind of vibe. Another major thing that was different for me personally was that I felt empowered uh, with everything that was going on um, to uh, negotiate for a real contract and to hold out for a real contract. Certainly. And, and, and knowing that this was, and by the way, that didn't go, that didn't really go over very well. No, I'm, I'm sure it didn't. And I'm sure there was a bit of uh, inherent risk in all of that, given all the supposed superstars yet to come. And, but yet to your point, rising tide, floating boats, right. Um, You had some cards to play, right. You're, you're a stellar stellar player, Uh. right. Well, well, but you, you, a U.S. citizen, right. Which is certainly uh, at a premium in that league. Right. And, um, and it, it, um, I, I just, it got, it had to seem it come in 77 and 78, two championship seasons in a brand spanking new giant stadium. I mean, you, you must have recognized by then either, you know, in the contract process or, or not that this was, this was big time. I probably had to pinch yourself on, on more than a few occasions, given where you had started from back in 72. Never pinched, but did look around uh, in awe often. Yeah. How did you, how did you, uh, one thing I remember about you as a player is that you were, uh, I guess for best of the lack of a better, better description, you, you were pretty Joe cool about stuff. I mean, on the field, you were pretty level-headed uh, obviously as a captain for sure. Uh, you know, uh, you were, you, you did all the right captainy things for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, how do you, how do you keep a level head, especially given all the, craziness of all those arguably those egos uh having to be often kept in check and by the way oftentimes at least uh, you look at some of the clips uh, especially with Giorgio in the mix stirring the drink uh coming at clashing heads once in a while yeah uh I don't know that I have an answer to that other than maybe you know I've experienced in my uh, lifetime um some some situations, you know, uh, post-war ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia that my family had to escape, uh, which took three years to get to America. And then, uh, you know, just starting off with nothing here is but family. It's all we had. And, you know, coming through it pretty, pretty well. So, you know, I've experienced uh, situations that that for me were much more difficult or challenging to take advantage of or to, uh, you know, overcome. Um, So it didn't seem like, it seemed like a natural progression for the game. And if you knew Clive, uh, Gordon, Steve and Jay and the Erdogans, you'd know that these guys can accomplish almost anything they set their minds to. So, you know, by by the beginning of 75, when these rumors were starting to be spread by people that I respected, I kind of expected, you know, that situation, still not ready for it emotionally, of course, when, when you meet Pelé and Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto. Uh, Giorgio Canaglia, I played against, uh, I think I, I suggested that Clive <laughs> sign Giorgio. I played against him a few years earlier, uh, 
on the U.S. national team, and he was playing for the uh, Italian national team, and we played in the Olympic Stadium in Rome, and uh, he scored seven goal. Uh, he scored three goals. Uh, the Italians beat us seven to two. It might have been nine to two. I forget. Um, so Giorgio, when Giorgio came, I said, you know, I'd rather be playing with you than against you. But uh, for us, most of most of the players, except of course those that were cut. You know, we all felt bad, but we all recognized um, what Clive and Steve uh, were trying to do and how this might impact the future of football in America, uh, pro football uh, in the States. And um, so I, I kind of accepted it, you know, cool, hot, calm. I don't know. I kind of accepted it all. Things were happening. You know, they were. And here's the other thing. They weren't happening that quickly. Right. They were happening relatively slowly. And so you had a chance to, uh, uh, you know, get uh, acclimated to uh, the changes. Uh, but mostly everything else was still the same. Steve Ross, Jay Emmett and the Erdogans were still great owners. They still came to the matches. They flew to matches. If I had uh, during my negotiation time, they would send the plane, uh, pick me up, drop me off at the game. I'd play the game. I'd jump back on a plane, come back home. Um, they were supportive to the nth degree. And so it seemed like, you know, and it was happening, it seemed like, you know, it's only going to get better. It's only going to get bigger. And 77, I think we proved, the Cosmos proved as a team, as a team of individuals, that if we set our minds to something and we did set our minds to something that year that we could accomplish it and you know came down to the last match to the last couple of minutes um but we knew we were able to do that so 78 which was a fear for everyone to some degree that post Pelé first season without Pelé can we still draw the crowds can we still you know get the attention can we still maintain the performances um, was for me a more impactful season because I think we were able to prove that our motivation can be more internal and less external. Like the great motivation obviously in 77 was sending Pele home as a champion. So that's a singular motivation. You only get once in a lifetime, I think. Uh, but 78, we were self-motivated um, you know, Eddie Fermani turned out to be a hell of a motivator as well. Um, and, and we were able to do it in basically our home, you know, in front of our own fans in our own city, which was the highlight of, uh, that whole season. Yeah. You know, like I think 77 was sort of the storybook ending that everybody kind of had hoped for. Yeah. You could not have scripted yeah. it any better. And, and I think interestingly, 78, uh, in my mind was essentially, I think if you look at the the brief but uh, uh, you know impactful uh, history of the team was probably the perfect season. I mean, it had all the drama in there, yeah, the, the yeah. mini game, and all that stuff, and the, the yeah, dramatic yeah. comeback in the case. But it was, I mean, you know, in terms of record, in terms of, um, and, and you were you were the captain for both of those championship uh, squads. Um, yeah. At, at what point, though, as you look around, right? Because you had come like the league itself, and like a lot of the players in it, had come so so far so relatively fast was there ever a time that you kind of looked around and kind of said 
is this sustainable? How does this keep going? I mean, you, you played another season in 79, which ended in disappointment, at least by Cosmos standards, um, which turned out to be uh, your, your last season. Um, but obviously, if people, maybe in hindsight, um, you know, there were certainly cracks uh, around some of the edges. I mean, what was your mindset? Or were you just too much in the moment of playing, enjoying the success and, um, you know, with, with some of the world's greatest players, both on your team and elsewhere? Yeah, I think it was mostly the latter. Um, by then we had, I, well, the 78 season was such a relief just to uh, have won in 77 because that would have been, um, you know, <laughs> unthinkable, unforgivable, and many other words. Um, yeah, or or so, the circus would be, you know, the the the, the, the tent was put up, it came, and, and and the big the big star attraction left, and oh, there goes the rest. Right, but that's that was a proof positive that you were onto something beyond just the Pele years. Yeah, and even beyond that, I think it was just uh, personally, and not with just me, but with other players as well. Uh, it was a re- big relief that we accomplished that. And maybe that was an advantage. We went into the 78 season, um, as I recall, you know, pretty, uh, pretty low key, pretty confident, you know, pretty whatever happens now. It's like, you know, let it happen. Bring it on. You know, we can, we can do this. It was less uh, of a pressure of a pressurized uh, element. And also, you know, 77, we started off with a uh, incredible speech by Steve Ross uh, on the first day of training. I remember Giant Stadium, the, uh, cr- the grounds crew was still shoveling snow off of the pitch and he came down in the, ele- in the helicopter and uh, the entourage and uh, not, not read us the riot act, but, but, you know, made it clear that uh, this wasn't necessary, necessarily sustainable, that this, you know, isn't a given, that uh, you know, we have to come back and do it again because that's the nature of the game. And, well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm saying in 1977 this happened, Yeah. right? Steve Ross came and he read us the riot act to some degree and said how important the season was. So 78... His talk to us was, you know, thank you. Your performances were incredible. And let's do the best that we can this season and let's enjoy our success. He was, he was consummate in that standpoint that if he didn't have to put pressure on, you know, he, he didn't want to add to it. But uh, we thought uh, 78 was uh, uh, kind of a low-key season. You know, we, we were training hard, playing hard. Um, and we knew that, you know, there are bumps in the road. So uh, I thought it was a much more exciting season than 77 from the standpoint of ups and downs. Um, but it was a much less stressful se- season. So the win was, you know, when I when I finally felt in, um, you know, the importance of that win was uh, kind of before the game, seeing that the stadium was full. Pelé was on the bench, you know, supporting us. Uh, Steve Ross and his entourage were up in the cheap seats. He was, he was, uh, <laughs> With his harness. He was harnessed into his, uh, into his seat. 
Um, you know, my parents were there. My uh, girlfriend was there. Everybody, all the players, their wives and girlfriends and families was there. So, you know, uh, then it kind of hit me that, you know, uh, we need to, we need to do this. <laughs> Luckily, uh, I think it was Tampa. Yeah, it was Tampa Bay. Luckily, Rodney, uh, was out of the game because of a, of an injury. So that kind of took even more pressure off me. And, uh, we played well. We had Dennis Stewart came in, right? Dennis Stewart replaced Pelé. Uh, he took all the pressure on his shoulders and scored a beautiful third goal. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was, was at that good. game, Soccer Bowl '78. I mean, it just it was probably the, the crowning achievement. And I, at that point, I think, uh, yeah, putting words in your mouth, I think then it was like kind of playing with house money. I think, yeah. and you know, and then then by then by the end of that that season, right? You you had the targets were firmly affixed on your back, right? Because yeah. everybody, you were the team everybody loved to hate. Uh, yeah. You were the draw. It was uh, it was all of it. And, you know, the, with that comes sort of the villain sort of thing. And 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 79 certainly was a real good example uh, of sort of all of that. Um, how did you uh, did you. So 79 was your last season. And obviously for the Cosmos, it was an interesting denouement coming off of 78. Right. And then reclaiming, yeah. I guess, an 80. Um, how was your. How did you wind up leaving the team? Was it kind of your choice? Was it kind of the team's choice? Was it a, was it a, a disdain for how the season had ended, uh, and you no. were sort of caught up in all of it? What? How does no, sort of that? I, I didn't. I didn't really experience much of the season because I had a a knee injury in preseason in Columbia, and um, I came back to New York. I I was immediately flown back to New York into surgery. And, um, in those days they did the old type of surgery where they literally go in, uh, no microsurgery yet. Um, and I had about a six to eight week recovery time. Uh, I think they initially said 12 weeks and I was in the cast from my toe to my crotch. And so I didn't really do anything except these, uh, uh, these special exercises that I needed to do to keep the uh, muscles um, in my injured leg from, uh, from, uh, you know, getting weak. So basically for all of that time, I was, uh, you know, on my back, on my crutches, uh, uh, trying to keep fit and um, didn't come back until, I think the beginning of the playoffs, I don't even remember, but uh, no, actually it wasn't even a game. It was a training session about halfway through the season. And I re-injured on the AstroTurf at Giant Stadium. I re-injured my leg and uh, re-ripped my interior uh, crucial ligament. And so I was out again uh, for more rehab. And then when I finally came back, I played one, I think one match uh, um, just before the playoffs or I don't even know if we made the playoffs, but I played one match and it wasn't there. It wasn't happening. I wasn't confident at all. And I met with uh, my doctor after, uh, you know, after that season. And he said, look, you can either, you know, keep playing for a year or two or or ski and uh, walk uh, comfortably for the rest of your life. Mm. You choose. <laughs> so, and by then, by the end of the season, Franz had gotten injured as well. 
I think was merciless at Giants. It was horrible, horrible. Although my injury, my original injury uh, uh, happened on beautiful grass field. Uh, In any case, um, so Franz was talking retirement. I had already decided uh, I was going to retire. And then I don't know if he retired then or if he played another season or. But then he he left and came back. And yeah. yeah, I went, you know moved to my house on the island and uh, basically got involved with other interests and, uh, you know, kept in touch with the team uh, from a distance. And were you surprised uh, at what ultimately happened to the league in the years that followed? I mean, um, yeah, of course, uh, of course. Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, but you you could see, as you said, you could see the, the cracking going on uh, even at the cosmos. I mean, you know, I loved uh, Giorgio's. I, I love any teammate. And, uh, you know, he was in some ways, he was an incredible, incredible uh, human being, but he was not a team player. And, um, you know, we found that out too late. He was power hungry, he was arrogant. He thought of himself uh, uh, mostly. Uh, so, and I tried to intervene with uh, the Erdogans, with Steve Ross, uh, there, there wasn't, uh, you know, any room there. So uh, I've, I started working with Giorgio actually when, uh, let's see, I retired in 80, I think 81. Um, I had an office at Warner Communications that I had ever since we were at Warner Communications. So, really? Yeah. Calais had an office. Uh, so uh, then Giorgio had an office, of course. Uh, but I went back uh, to the office. I was basically cleaning up, cleaning out. Uh, nobody told me to leave. Nobody said anything. They, I was part of the family, and I understood that. They understood that. Um, but Giorgio and Pepe Pinton at the time, you know, they were very ambitious for the club, for the league, for themselves. And um, But in my final meeting uh, with, uh, I think it was the GM, I think it was Creek or your premium at the time. I, I forget. Sure. He said, well, why don't you stay on board and uh, do our community development, which I was the other thing I was interested in was community development. And so I think I was there for four or five days and I had put together an event. And uh, that I started talking to people about, uh, uh, about doing uh, and participating in and helping out and all that. And uh, Giorgio in his first they in the office that I was there uh, said, no, we're not, we're not doing this kind of stuff. We don't need it. So I basically left and, you know, said my goodbyes to everyone, but I basically left then and never went back. And I did a couple of projects with Steve Ross and with Warners. Um, Later I got involved with the world cup committee. I uh, joined uh, the U S soccer federation uh, as a, um, representative of Special Olympics International, which was a program I was uh, very passionate about. Well, and were, you, were, you, were you part of the 82 uh, 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 Hail Mary uh, for the World Cup to get the World Cup in 82? Uh, no, no. This was late 80s. This was we were going for 94. Got it. Okay. Yeah. There, were, there was that. There was that. Yeah. Sort of there was 80s. a replacement. Yeah. yeah. We were going to be a replacement uh, country. They gave it to Mexico again, I think, uh, or Colombia. Or, I don't know. But no, it was late 80s. I was on the board. Werner Fricka was president. Um, we thought, you know, we had 
by that time we had the potential to get the World Cup. We certainly had, you know, the uh, infrastructure side. We didn't necessarily have the football side, but we were getting better. Uh, and we did, and we got it. So I was involved with them for, you know, that amount of time. And then, you know, we had this whole, we had this whole revolution at the uh, convention uh, when, you know, uh, Werner Fricker was voted out and Alan Rothenberg was voted in. I was a, I was a member of the revolutionary side. I felt, uh, unfortunately, I felt that, uh, you know, our federation as, as uh, commissioned at the time was not able to pull this thing off and maximize. This was our maybe one chance in a lifetime to maximize, um, you know, our opportunity to host the world cup and to benefit, you know, from the legacies that are left behind, uh, world cup countries, world cup host countries and, uh, including a new league, right. That hopefully would not repeat the same mistakes as, uh, as the past. Yep. Yep. Uh, so we went through that whole growth. I consider it a growth period uh, in our federation. And then I stayed on a bit until uh, we finished with the World Cup. And uh, then I, uh, you know, was the, then I, another, another shiny thing got my attention. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but. <laughs> and uh, so. <laughs> well, let me. So, I, a couple. I, first of all, this has been this has been great, and I don't want to keep you like all night because we could go all night. But I know you don't want to, and I wouldn't want to put you in that position anyway. Um, but let me give you a couple of lightning round questions because I, I, there are a few that I just got to knock out um, yeah. before I let you go. Um, talk to me about victory in and the movie and playing uh, uh, next to Pele and Michael Caine and, and the like in nineteen eighty two. How did that come about? So. I'm at a dinner with Pelé. I'm trying to convince him to become my soccer ambassador for Special Olympics International. And he said, uh, well, I can't this year. I'm doing this movie in Budapest. And I said, what movie? And he said, if you want to if you want to participate, uh, you know, they still haven't cast all of the all of the parts. So I said, I would love to. Um, the next thing I know is I get a call from Ahmed. Erdogan, who was working with the producer, Freddie Fields, and who was uh, the one that got Pelé involved. So Ahmed says, Freddie wants you to fly out to L.A., wants to wants you to read the script, and uh, he wants to talk to you. So I fly out to L.A., I read the script. I talked to him, he said, look, these are the uh, characters that have been cast. And of course, you know, my thing was, okay, Pelé is doing this, you know, it's going to be fun. But when I realized John Huston was the director, then there was nothing standing in my way to doing this. So I went to L.A. thinking I'd have to convince Freddie Fields uh, uh, to cast me. Uh, but uh, he already he said, no problem. Uh, John Huston knows about you. You've seen your photograph. He's having trouble casting. Um, no, they didn't even tell me at the time. He said, look at any of these um, characters that haven't been cast yet. And then um, let me know which character you want to play and we'll make it happen. So I fly back to New York and I literally had an acting coach. I was very interested in the profession at the time because, in fact, Jay Emmett always used to say, I'm going to make you a star. <laughs> and if I well, wanted it, he would disclosure for fans <laughs> who were not around at that time. And I had some some female friends at the time would uh, let's put it this way. You, you did have and still arguably still do 
have some movie star looks to you. you I mean, you, <laughs> you did have a little bit of that benefit, and I'm sure that's partially why but they, <laughs> they, were trying to, right. they were trying to get you in there, right? Yeah. So we, uh, I come back to New York. I picked this part of this Frenchman because I'd been working on this French accent. I always wanted to speak French, but I figured if I had the accent, it would be a good head start. Um, so I picked the, uh, uh, this French, he had a small part, never got to the game, but he had, I thought a really pivotal part that I could make something out of. So, uh, and I even had an agent at the time, a manager or something. And so my manager called, she said, uh, you know, Freddie wants you in Budapest, like in a week. Can you do that? I said, absolutely. So uh, I got the Budapest. All my luggage is, uh, is uh, lost in uh, Heathrow. I don't have any luggage. I've got a pair of jeans, some uh, flip-flops, um, a t-shirt and a wraparound sweater. That's what I had. I get a, um, I just get into the hotel. Pele comes over. He goes, okay, we have a, and it's like five o'clock. So we have a six o'clock dinner with Freddie and John at the International Hotel. He said, you better dress up. <laughs> I said, well, that's not going to happen. But so we get there. He's wearing, you know, a blue tuxedo. Pele used to dress uh, beautifully, extravagantly. <laughs> and so we get to this uh, uh, hotel, Intercontinental hotel the restaurants on the top floor we get out of the elevator the waiters are wearing tuxedos i we get to the table there's freddie fields you know suit and tie dressed to the nines but john he's wearing like a mexican wraparound he's wearing sandals i don't even know if he was wearing underwear but uh you know nothing i lost all my insecurity about my uh you know, my clothes and we had a great time. So here's how I got cast as uh Bauman, the bad German guy. Right. So uh, John Houston says, I understand, you know, from Fetty that you wanted the part of this uh, French guy. And he says, uh, um, we already cast it, but I also, I need you in the game he said, you know, I, we would be totally wasting you if we cast you for, for somebody that, you know, for a character that wasn't playing the game. So you're playing the game. But I want you to play Bauman, the Nazi captain. So, of course, I know the part. And, you know, there's, there's no speaking whatsoever. There's just, you know, playing and, and uh, you know, some, making some drama. Some camera uh, stays on your, on your, on your <laughs> yeah. mug. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, John, uh, I really thank you for, you know, inviting me onto this uh, production. And, but I really, you know, I'm looking to get into acting. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what. And he made this, uh, you know, the the uh, film, uh, what, what all film directors do, they put their fingers together, their thumb and forefinger together, and they make a screen, right? That this is what they see through the camera. So he made this, this uh, screen with his fingers, and he put it on my face, and he said, it's going to be you. And then he put it on Pelé's face, and he said, it's going to be Stallone. Then back to me, he said, it's going to be you, and it's going to be Stallone. <laughs> and he uh he talked me into it so that was my uh that was my casting uh casting session yeah and and those scenes those uh those soccer scenes were actually quite good i mean i i you know it's uh, not an easy thing to do not an easy trick um yeah and and the other thing he promised me oh this was the other thing he promised me because john wasn't going to direct the action sequences 
he didn't he didn't feel he knew enough about the game. He didn't feel he had enough experience about uh, about shooting pro sports and specifically soccer. Not that he thought he needed it, but he hired probably the best sports photographer guy by the name of Robert Rieger that created um, um, channels that created uh, ABC wide world of sports uh, with the other, you know, with the other mega sports producer, I forget his name, but he had Robert Rieger shoot all of the game action, but he said, I'm going to shoot the uh, finale between you and Stallone. So uh, I couldn't say no, I did. And you know, it was fun. It was a great time. We had, you know, the guys that, you know, uh, Pelé and um, Adilas and uh, Bobby Moore, but half the, um, I think it was Ipswich team was there. Um, Donny Osmond, uh, uh, Michael, et cetera. I mean, we had a great time. And, and the funny thing, John always knew what pub the players were at during takes. He always knew where to send his assistant because somebody always told him, okay, they're at this hotel, they're at this bar, they're at this place. <laughs> but I spent most of my time with John and watching him work. And um, um, I, we were staying at the same hotel. So I, everybody else had cars. I didn't have a car. They, uh, I would drive with John and his uh, and his daughter to a granddaughter, and his assistant uh, to and from uh, the set. Um, so we had a chance to talk and and really get to know each other. We played backgammon every Thursday night. Um, you know, we had regular card games, poker games. It was fun. It was a good time. All right, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and Budapest is such an incredible city. I mean, it's on the Danube. It's so romantic. It's lit up like a, you know, a jewel at night. Uh, uh, it was just, you know, fantastic. It was a great time during the year. Uh, so it was just, it was a good, a good time. I, I thought I, did I read somewhere that, that you're uh, working on some stuff now, maybe around the Cosmos story or your life around that time uh, for, we for are, some kind of treatment? Yes. All right. Yep. You, without violating confidences, can you let our no, audience no, no, in no. on some of that? Yeah, yeah. We've been trying to let everybody know uh, as much as possible. We're, we, we've been in development um, for and about... Who, who's we, just to, for back? <laughs> uh, I have a writing partner um, called Roy Hewlett. He's a, an industry guy. He's a distributor mostly. Uh, but he's a writer-producer. And I met him actually through Jay Emmett. Uh, Roy wanted to produce a film about Steve Ross. And uh, he had optioned a book by uh, Connie, uh, I forget the oh, last Con- name. Connie Brook, Master of the Game. Connie Brook, oh, oh my God, that's, that book game. is fan. That's, that it's is a, a revelation. Book. Yeah, them. yeah. And so uh, Steve uh, had already died by this time. And uh, Roy was chasing down, you know, some some leads and got to uh, Jay Emmett, who was Steve Ross's second in command at Warner's from its inception and through its time Warner evolution. Uh, But he was retired living in Florida and I'd been in touch with Jay and Steve, of course, you know, forever and Clive toy. And so 
Jay uh, guided uh, or counseled Roy to drop the project because he's going to lose a lot of money. Nobody in Hollywood is going to make a film about Steve Ross based on Connie Brooks' book. So that's out. But he said, I'll tell you what, you know, you're in L.A. A good buddy of mine, Werner Roth, is in L.A. He's the captain of the Cosmos. He's got a project he, he'd love to produce. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been working on for a while. And uh, maybe you should join him with that project. And so it's exactly what happened. Roy called. Uh, we got together. He lives, you know, 20 minutes away. We got together and uh, we started developing this project. Um, we had a we had a deal, a development deal with a French production company that um, that didn't materialize, um, but it did keep our momentum going. And so we decided to try to instead of finding a writer and a production house, we would first write a script and it's turned into a series now from a film, but it's a TV series, a limited series uh, about the rise and fall of the New York cosmos and my and Clive toys, personal interaction with that story, Clive's early days, my early days and how we kind of came together with uh, the Erdogans and and Ross and Jay and, uh, you know, kind of uh, had, you know, took this journey together. And uh, uh, so we'd like to see it as a series. I think it's, you know, it's a deep enough story that you can, that you can, uh, that you could write a series about it. Oh, it's an, also an incredible time given we're streaming yeah. right now, right? You, you could yeah. do a series without it being sort of, I mean, it can be just a handful of episodes per seat. I mean, there's yep. a lot of stuff yep. you can creatively Absolutely. do and, versus what you could have done 10 even to five years yep. ago. And uh, not and and also uh, the timing of the World Cups coming up, uh, men's and women's, and then us hosting the World Cup in twenty six and with Canada and Mexico. So we think the next five years, uh, soccer has been a very tough sell in uh, Hollywood. Uh, but now Ted Lasso is helping. You know, people are talking Ted Lasso. So once we have a completed uh, series outline a completed uh, draft of a pilot and um, and maybe a Bible, you know, uh, kind of a show and tell overview of uh, the series. You know, we're going to start showing it around and hope we can get you know, more interest than we have in the past. Yeah, we'd, we'd, I mean, you know, personally would love to see it, but you know, you know how many, uh, uh, Cosmos fans, there still are out there. You you know how popular that logo still is. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, without a team for years now, even in a, a a reconstituted version, no longer with us. Sadly, uh, it is it's an iconic brand. Uh, the memories uh, are arguably forever. Uh, it's and and you were part of it. You were a significant part of it. And um, God forbid it could actually uh, uh, see the light of day for another generation of fans. And, and look, I, this kind of leads me to my next question. My last question, really. Well, let is, me, let me, ahead, let yeah, me please. Uh, contribute to your, to, to your current uh, flow. Um, the Cosmos brand, you know, it's heartbreaking, um, you know, where it is, it's stat- it's current status, but I've recently gotten involved with an old friend and teammate, Shep Messing, I've heard of him. Who was the goalkeeper on the 77 championship team. We're still trying to get him, by the way. Oh, well, uh, I'm going to help you with that. With his arm again uh, for me. Thank so, you. So here's the story. 
um, I'm getting back in, I've gotten back involved with Shep and to some degree the game because MASL, you know, small sided indoor, it is the game. It's a different version, but we play football and uh, we think we'd like to um, resurrect the New York Cosmos as a uh, Long Island team in addition to the New York Arrows. Uh, I love it. I love it. Keep going. Well, that's, uh, you know, we're working on this pod concept, which is, you know, to grow the league. We want to grow the game, grow the league. We think this pod concept of seeding certain areas that we have direct access to and where we know quite a few people and quite a few people know us. We think if we reseed the Long Island Arrows and reseed the New York Cosmos initially as an indoor but, you know, the future of American soccer is the super club. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a successfully owned and operated professional club that has 11 aside men's and women's, six aside arena soccer men's and women's, uh, youth academy for development, early childhood uh, youth development and leagues, and create a pipeline within a community, because I'm a, I'm a great believer in um, the book called The Goldmine Effect. It's uh, Rasmus Anderson's, um, you know, decade-long study about the performance gene, and that if you dig deep enough in any community, you can develop athletes of extraordinary potential. And you know, we've got an opportunity now. Shep and I have talked for decades about, you know, what's wrong with American soccer, how we can help it grow and develop more and better players. And, and uh, we think we have an opportunity with, uh, with this Arena League. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Well, that, that leads me to my last question. And by the way, did you ever play indoor in the formative uh, NASL indoor years in 75, 76-ish? Not, not NASL. I did play indoor when I, when I was on the U.S. national team. In the early 70s, we played against the Russian national team ah, yes. in, in Philadelphia. And because the, the conditions were, you know, uh, impossible to play in, we moved the game indoors and played six aside on their hockey rink, on the Philadelphia, you know, whatever they are, on their indoor hockey rink. Uh, indoor soccer is, has been played for, gener- for hundreds of years by every, you know, advanced professional amateur soccer club in the world. It's, they do it in the off season to stay in shape. Uh, it's a training protocol called Rondo. Everybody in the world knows arena soccer in a, in a form, one form or another. And I think, you know, we have a chance to connect sand soccer and futsal and arena soccer with the outdoor game, but do it in every community and create recreational and, you know, uh, enjoyment and um, competitive opportunities for players of every age throughout their lives. It's what, you know, what we started this conversation about. It's the International Social Club writ large, right? It's a place where kids and their parents can go, they can play, they can socialize, and they can support a club. Uh, it's not been regardless, done uh, regard, regardless of what format it's in. Right. Cause that's, that's, absolutely. that's the unique yes. thing about this, right. Is that 
we say super club right now. Unfortunately, we now we hear that seems like, that sounds like Man City with a team in yeah. in MLS and a team in the right. Australian league and you know at Red Bull and you know multiple franchises. That's one way. No, but it, you're talking about soccer on all that. levels, yeah. right? And having in the having, community, yeah, yeah, and having and having teams and and uh and and activities across the entire spectrum regardless of league regardless of it's indoors outdoors beach whatever yeah yeah and and you play in all of those leagues and you're giving opportunity to young players to raise their performance levels you know through six aside through you know arena soccer through uh futsal through you know into 11 aside through semi-pro you know with usl and some of the others um but it's a community effort and the other thing is, if it's done that way, the top of the py- pyramid is going to pay for the bottom of the period. You're not going to have players being charged, thousand, you know, young players, thousands of dollars to play soccer, you know, in their own community. I mean, that's it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, travel it's, soccer. you know, yeah, yeah. it's it's pay to play and it shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't. The Federation should shouldn't let it happen, you know. Uh, and they're they're really making it happen more. They're making it easier, you know. So we're just looking at our players as a market, right? As a revenue stream. When we should really look be, be looking at our players as our future, our future fans, our future players, you know, our future participants in the community. And uh, we think, you know, we think uh, Shep and I and Keith Tozer and JP Del Camera and all the heavy hitters at MASL, you know, were like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> so watch this space. All right. Well, that leads me to my very last question then. And you, I think I, I, I think I understand where you're going to come from on this, but okay. give, give me, give me your assessment of the current state of pro soccer in this country, in particular major league soccer, right? Which has its warts and all, however, some significant progress in real stadiums and all that kind of stuff. But you know, on the international yeah. level, has it really bloomed into anything, right? So yeses and noes, um, but through the eyes of somebody who played in the league that really kind of started it all in this country professionally, uh, I mean, of substance, the NASL, how do you feel about the game professionally now as you look around and 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 look to become more active and, and, and supportive of whatever this country is going to become soccer-wise? Well, I think it's the state of play in, in the U.S. I think it's great compared to what it used to be. Uh, But as you say, it's not in uh, competition with the international game. We're, you know, we're, it's going to be a long time before we change, you know, before we can challenge at the international level. Uh, I think the national team, the women's team has certainly proven it, uh, that it can be done. The men's national team will prove it. I think, you know, they keep getting closer and closer but the reasons, you know, are really twofold in each of those situations. The reason for the women's national program doing so well internationally is because we are a country of uh, positive and pro, um, you know, women's uh, athletic, um, you know, objectives. We're supportive. And I think young girls have been playing and training and developing. You know, Title IX has opened up the doors um, you know, for all of that, um, at the men's at the men's side, we're only as successful as we have been because of the players, not because of our system or because of the federation or anything they're doing at the, you know, academy or developmental levels. 
the reason those players, we have a certain uh, number of players in this country, a certain percentage that play on their own, that have had early childhood development, that love the game, that play passionately, that train three hours a day because they know if they do less, they won't be competitive, that do all of those things and they're not really being um, proactively encouraged by uh, their coaches or their clubs or their leagues, um, but they're doing it on their own because they know they need to. And uh, so they succeed and they are driving the national program, both on the men's and on the women's side, you know, both, both, all of those players are working on their own and not le- leaving it to the Federation to develop them. So you've got that going, but at the developmental levels, we are not instituting the empirical research that's out there and the international knowledge about player development and performance uh, maximization. And all the information is there. It's long-term athlete development. It's LATD. It's the 10-year, 10,000-hour rule. It's Rasmussen's um, um, goldmine effect. Um, it's early childhood development. We've got a guy, Tom Beyer. The man is a genius at early childhood development. He's literally built from the ground up the Japanese system of football. Their pro leagues are incredibly competitive. Their, their national teams are competitive. Uh, we have access to this guy uh, and to his knowledge, and, but we just don't apply it. We're a revenue-driven, coach-focused uh, country when it comes to football. We need to be you know, a, a 501C, a non-for-profit, don't charge any players at the youth level to play anywhere at any time. And we need to be player centric and not coach centric. And are we ever going to do that? I don't know. Um, the uh, MLS, I was contracted uh, in, I th- a decade ago, 2010, 2011, by MLS to do a state of play analysis uh, for them. I had the luxury of watching players, talking to players, talk, talking to coaches, uh, you know, seeing uh, training programs, uh, their development protocols, uh, talking to players was the most important thing. And the best players came from or had early childhood development. They've had this whole pipeline that we've been talking about. And uh, the, the players that were struggling didn't. There was one simple uh, uh, thing that, were, that was the red flag or the you know, smoking gun. And it was cardiovascular, cardiovascular um, the, the ability for your heart to go from active, um, full active uh, exertion to active rest in the shortest period of time. And that is, requires a special training. And that's what three hours a day will do for you. That's, that's what uh, deep water training will do for you. That's what high altitude training will do for you, which all these international players do. Um, but it's, it's not something that, uh, for one reason or another, that you know, the masters that be uh, are currently applying. Uh, you know, everybody agrees that the U.S., its size and its, its wealth, uh, you know, should have been leading, leading the world in, in uh, football by now. But, you know, and, and the answers are there. The solutions are there. The action is not. Uh, uh, the, the, I don't think the, they're not interested really in that. 
I think it's more of a revenue-driven, sustainable, like with, uh, you know, Don Garber and the MLS. You know, player development was a late process. Their first objective was financial security and and um, soccer-only stadiums, which turned out to be the best idea, right? Because it really provided a financial stability, which always caused failure. But they have this, and now they can build from that. But are they going to do, you know, promotion and relegation? Doubtful. Are they going to do? Are they going to focus on? you know, player development and youth development, doubtful, because it's not in their best interest. They're looking to make rich people rich. And, you know, they'll do whatever they can. The stadiums, you know, a bunch of those stadiums were built on the community's dime. So, uh, you know, you know, it's it's hard to see them as, uh, you know, as uh, this uh, goody two-shoe, you know, developmental idea. It should be, but it's not. Yeah, I mean, those are really, really good points, and and, and the fact that they're uh, the MLS is launching a, 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 frankly, a directly competitive feeder league or in with MLS Next. I mean, you know, what's USL all about? I mean, it, yeah, it, yeah. there's there's so much, you know, and this reeks of big pro sports and money and private equity and uh, shall we say cheap money that uh, maybe the uh, increased in uh, increase in Interest rates over the next number of years may kind of uh, let some of the air out of that. Um, maybe some of those uh, more noble and more sustainable approaches that you're talking about uh, may actually have a chance to kind of take take root once sort of, let's call it maybe this initial phase of 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 investment and money and, and franchise values kind of, I don't want to say dissipates, I hope not dissipates, but maybe kind of, you know, moderates a little bit because at the end of the day, it's one thing to have a shiny stadium and a, and a and a and a great crest on your jersey, right, with a lo- with a, a sponsor on it. But if the, if the quality of the product and the p- quality of the player and the competitiveness on the international level, the supposed ultimate arbiter of how a country is coming along, you know, if, if that isn't sort of going to the next level, and and you said it before, it sh- arguably should have happened a long time ago. Um, you wonder where the next sort of uh, phase of of uh, of the sports uh, growth and success in this country comes from. It's going to come from the player, um, the federation to some degree, but the MS and MLS doesn't have any interest in international. Or it, it has interest in in international competition. They'd love to be, but not at the risk of their financial, um, you know, security and capability and, and investing in the grassroots and all the way up and in all the things that we're talking about. Um, because they're filling stadiums now as it is doing what they do with the players they have and the performances they deliver and which they do a good job. The stadiums are nice and clean. You know, the press reports get out, all the information's there, the data is collected. They have more, you know, ticket sellers than uh, player development people on their staffs. Uh, but you know, that's not, it's not what the player deserves. It's not what the player needs. And this game is about the player. It's not about the guys, the suits in the, you know, suit in the suites. Um, and that's not happening as far as I can tell, there's no indication that there's any interest in that happening, uh, with plans or ideas or anything like that. They're, they're driven by a, a um, different set of 
objectives than the player is. The player can use them, and this is the beauty of the MLS. It's a fantastic platform to exhibit your capabilities. And I think a lot of players have ta- have taken that route, MLS to international development. And um, but yeah, your your individual international development is is better served by playing internationally, almost on almost on every level, almost at every league level, because you'll get better. And again, just getting back to that state of play analysis, it's called cardiovascular interval stamina. That's the ability that dictates how quickly you can recover and go 100% again. And if you put a EPL game or, you know, La Liga or, or a Bundesliga on a monitor against the MLS on another monitor, you will think you're watching uh, either slow motion or, you know, fast motion. But it is not the same. And that is because their interval stamina is not capable of sustaining a level of uh, exertion that you need to to be skillful, you know, run into position, you know, pass the ball accurately. So you have passes going sideways, going back, slow build up and all of that. And then a few minutes, a few seconds of, of high speed interaction in the attacking third. But, you know, it's not at the level of international. And now with um, the capability, the media capability of watching anything uh, being played anywhere, literally, uh, you have a lot of choices. MLS, get your act together or, you know, wind up with the 50,000 seats in your stadium, but the tens of millions watching everybody else. All right, there is a reason, no, many reasons why Werner Roth is a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame, a treasure, a keeper of the flame. Uh, And as we remember, the founding of the New York Cosmos North American Soccer League franchise 51 years ago this week in February of 1971, uh, we thank him for allowing us to uh, add yet another chapter, another layer, uh, another uh, bucket o uh, gold nuggets in uh, our continuing quest to uh, understand the full and complete picture of uh, the history of that club, uh, the history of the league, the importance, the uh, uh, all the things that, uh, frankly, were set in motion or um, advanced, shall we say, in uh, the history and the development of the sport in this country. Uh, we'll uh, tip our uh, Cosmos cap in the general direction, not only of Warner, but uh, the great Clive Toy, one of our earliest guests on this show, uh, being the sort of chief instigator at behest of uh, the brothers uh, Erdogan and uh, Steve Ross back in the day. Perhaps we'll have Clive back on again to kind of uh, give us some, some other uh, highlights of, of sort of that uh, that founding uh, and the uh, uh, the things that sort of occurred uh, in the earliest of days, perhaps the uh, moldiest and oldiest of, uh, of, of thoughts around uh, of the founding of the franchise. Uh, but thank you to Werner, and uh, we thank you, of course, uh, for listening. Um We also want to uh, encourage you, uh, if you've enjoyed this show, you're going to find lots of uh, great other episodes, uh, not just in soccer and the Cosmos, uh, but also all kinds of uh, teams and leagues and and, and, 
sports of, of yore. And all of the uh, the catalog of the, the shows that we've done thus far and will in the future can be found at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Of course, you can subscribe and follow us whatever and wherever that you enjoy uh, to get podcasts and streaming audio. Uh, and of course, if you'd rate and review us and give us a hefty five stars or whatever, the, the thumbs up or whatever, the uh, the attaboys or whatever, whatever you can do to uh, help the algorithms, we appreciate that. And uh, tell your friends, why don't you? Um, and there's just lots of great episodes. There's, there's I guarantee you there's something in there uh, and uh, that you're going to enjoy and, and hopefully uh, discover for the first time. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that, too. We're at uh, hello at good seats still available dot com. Please, by all means, we uh, enjoy our uh, proverbial uh, electronic cards and letters. Thank you for those. Uh, let's see what else. Our social media feeds. Yeah, you'll find uh, various postings uh, on Facebook. We got a little page devoted to us there uh, on Instagram. You'll find us at good seats still available and on Twitter, probably our most active social platform. You'll find us at good seats still. What else on the website? You'll find a little link uh, to subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Uh, just send us your name and your email address, and uh, voila, you will be in the know, uh, hopefully a few hours or days ahead of our upcoming episodes, so you'll be sort of uh, ready to go, and perhaps uh, before the hoi polloi, you'll be uh, uh, good to go, and you'll you'll have all the knowledge you need to uh, survive the week ahead. And um, I think that's it. Let's say thanks, of course, to Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Thank you, kind sir. And uh, we, of course, cannot leave you. Uh, without a, a little uh, musical uh, send-off. And, of course, we've got to go back to uh, the 1981 uh, feature film. It was called Escape to Victory in markets outside the United States, but uh, those who grew up and uh, saw the film or continue to enjoy the film in streaming fashion or whatever uh, here in the United States know it simply as Victory. Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, uh, a who's who of, of soccer players and stars, including one, Werner Roth, yes, on the evil German team, but uh, we will, uh, in the uh, uh, the realm of uh, a dramatic license, we will give him uh, a free pass on that. Uh, and here it is. It's Bill Conti, the great uh, composer extraordinaire, Bill Conti, with the, uh, the ending theme to the movie that we in the United States called Victory. Uh, enjoy the memories. Uh, rewatch the film. And uh, until next week, we'll, uh, we'll see you. Bye-bye. <laughs>